we're not haters, so we're not going out there and, you know, looking for latte people to go <laughs> shoot down because we all love a latte. But I guess it's just we feel that city people that, that just don't want to look outside and come and make those decisions for themselves and push that environmental agenda for the wrong reasons. Um, we feel that we, we look like the bad guys when we're... We are environmentalists at heart. There's no doubt about that. Shelley Schooler grows rice on the Murray River in southern New South Wales. She grew up on a rice farm and hopes her young kids will keep the tradition alive. She doesn't want to be a villain, but that's simply the way she's seen. The Murray-Darling Basin river system is such a vexed issue that even as irrigators up and downstream talk constantly of working together... There's genuine tension between environmentalists, farmers, towns, irrigators, city and country. And things have boiled over this year as a single round of water allocations in Queensland and northern New South Wales threaten the future of Australia's most important river system. My name's Eric George. I'm a journalist with The Australian Newspaper. I've been fascinated by the basin for years, but have never had the chance to see the story myself. So to change that, I headed out for a long drive along the border of New South Wales and Victoria to speak to those affected and try to understand what it's like to have these kind of tensions hanging over your town every day. Now, I don't want to get into the nitty-gritty of Australian water policy here, but we should lay a bit of groundwork first. So here's the Australian's rural reporter, Sue Neills, with the crib notes. Yeah, well, the plan's been going for coming up to six years now, and the original idea was that when they looked at the plan and they look at the average flow of all these rivers in the basin, about 42% of the water that average flows in the basin was being taken out by irrigators, and the feeling was that was too much. So the aim was that we take it down to about 33%, and that's really what the basin plan was all about, take some water from irrigators and make sure it goes to the environment. And all the states agreed and all the political parties agreed, so that was a really, really rare consensus, and... It was showed that the public and everyone actually agreed that something had to be done and it's costing $13 billion of taxpayers' money. So there's certainly public support for something to be done. The question now is, is it working? Um, are the aims being met? And is the water sharing between irrigators and the environment and river communities, is, is it fair? Does it get very tricky when people start wanting to renegotiate one small part of this deal because it is the thin end of a wedge and it just gives everyone an excuse to renegotiate their share? I guess what happens is politics often gets in the way. Um, the Murray-Darling Basin Authority is independent and they have scientists and they've been looking at how much water needs to be returned to the environment. And what they're saying is that you actually can return water to the environment and benefit the environment in other ways rather than taking it directly from farmers. So that's 75% of the water that was aimed to be recovered from farmers to be returned to the environment has actually been made already. Uh, what's happening is the uh, river towns and farmers and communities are saying we can't lose any more water from productive use because we'll, uh, food bowls will produce less, we'll have less jobs and enough is enough. And the engineers and the scientists are saying we can actually do the same thing with this water in other ways for the environment. So they're saying things like we can build extra weirs or pump water from the river up into wetlands rather than wait for the river to flood, which will mean uh, farmers have to give back less water, but we can still benefit the environment and the native fish and the river red gums and the wetlands and the bird life. The Greens call that legalised theft and say that's not what the plan was about. So that's where the 
disagreements are now and that's why you're hearing a lot of noise now about whether the Murray-Darling plan might actually fall over halfway through its life. You've been following this story yourself closely for a long period of time. How do you feel things stand today? Environmentally, the results are still mixed um, and the scientists say, look, that's not unusual for five years into a plan and we have had five very good years, so the real test is going to be when the next big drought comes along and that's what people are really worried about. As far as farmers go... um, Water prices have gone up. So there's a debate about, you know, areas like around Shepparton, which are built for dairy farming and built for irrigation. You're actually seeing the irrigation water disappear because those farmers can no longer make a living there. So there's a lot of debates about social dislocation, about winners and losers in the basin. You could say that's hard economics and the economics of water trading is working. So lots of things have changed, lots are working, but there's a lot of pain out there too and you should never underestimate that because in in country towns that does mean empty shops, people without jobs, schools with fewer kids, no footy team, uh, you know, the, the, the post office closing, all the usual things you hear about rural towns uh, disintegrating. And certainly in some areas of the basin, that's been really hard hit. Someone who's seen the impacts of these high water prices firsthand is Shelley Schooler, who opened this podcast. Now, I've often heard about how inefficient rice was to farm in Australia, simply because you have to keep the paddocks flooded at all times. But Shelley insisted that she wouldn't be turning her property over to a different crop anytime soon. Compared to other crops, you know, we're on par for water usage. And as I said, we use 50% less water than the global average to grow a kilogram of rice. So, you know, the amount of people that we can feed for our megalitre of water, you know, we are efficient. And you, you saw my rice crop that you just mm. drove in, and that's only a really small rice crop of about 27 hectares that I would hope will feed you know just under 2 million people this year like that's just in that small little bit is about 200 uh, sorry 2 million servings of rice just under and like that's amazing crop what an amazing crop Australian rice growers feed 23 million people a day it's a staple food and I feel so proud that I can feed so many people. I love doing that. And, yeah, it's disappointing that we have policies in place that aren't allowing us to be as productive as we could be. So I guess how do you feel about the kind of outlook for water security in, in, in the river, in your immediate neighbourhood, kind of what's, you know, day to day when you get up in the morning, what's it like in the back of your mind? Yeah, look, I feel threatened, to be honest. I feel, look, if you take 30% of any business's resources... Just to clarify that figure, farmers near Shelley have already had their annual water allocations cut by about 30% since the introduction of the Basin Plan. That That's our major input. That impacts it dramatically so um it really it's um just made the the availability and affordability of water for our farmers uh, it's just really impacted on that in the back of your head you just think if more water cut leaves our region there's a tipping point surely the, the the water usage has to drop like that's that's there's an equation there right of water in versus water out and that has to change otherwise there's no future right yeah, like we have to have that balance right because, yeah, if there's a cut-off point and once we reach that cut-off point, the system won't be viable. And that's it's just plain business sense and 
you know, playing sums that you can't do. We will reach a point where the system won't work anymore. Farmers and our our people in this region that have grown up and spent years of their life understanding the system have been left out of um, contributing to having a... Everyone wants a good basin plan. There's, everyone wants that. But what this one's been based on and how it's been implemented in such a quick time frame um, is disappointing and we could do it in, in such a better way. One of the hard parts to wrap your head around with the Murray is how water is both scarce and abundant. Myself and Sue got up at the crack of dawn to get a better perspective of the system and went on a guided tour with one of Deniliquin's keenest fishermen, the appropriately named Ian Fisher. Ian spends a fair portion of his life out in his very flash tinny, chasing the Murray River's most prized game. The, the iconic Murray cod just doesn't get caught. It's very uncatchable. People will fish for years and years trying to catch these things, don't catch any. There's certain ways to catch them, and people don't know the ways to catch them. So when you're trying to hunt for a fish of a lifetime, which is a metre-plus fish, they never bite for a start. Just a bit of clarification here to help you avoid repeating my own embarrassing mistakes. The majestic Murray cod is native to Australian water, but carp, which we hear plenty about, is a pest introduced by Europeans. As for Ian, well, he's basically your ultimate fisho. Picture a man with a big grin hidden beneath a bucket hat, wearing a synthetic speckled green polo shirt patterned on the scales of his beloved cod. This is a man who has spent his entire life closely observing the ecosystems of his local rivers. And to explain how delicately balanced things in his own backyard can be, he used the example of a local river bird, the Azuri kingfisher. You say you just think uh, in the early spring you've got a heap of uh, Zuri kingfishers with um, their nests all along this bank here. And you shoot an environmental fly down and then it fl floods them all out and kills all their young. And so they don't. So they move out of the area and they potentially don't come back at all. Um, that's sort of things that can happen. What, what you see here is like you'll flood that with uh, you know a metre of water. A metre of water through this area here is probably only 20,000 megs, so um, you know, it's not, not a lot of water. Ian has seen just how susceptible his local rivers are to deadly floods only a few years ago, when pooling water devastated the fish he cares most about. That put an end to his cooperation with water authorities, and he's since lost faith in any real prospect of a solution for the Murray. It was like they fiddled while Rome burned. I know they're just trying to do their best. I understand that. And the guys that are in Canberra that I bought here, you know, like when I was, I was ringing them up in Canberra and I was saying, there's fish dying in front of my eyes. And they said, you're breaking my heart, you're killing me here. I'm watching these metre fish floating past dead in the water. Oh, I can't handle it anymore. I've got, to, I've got to stop doing this. It's really an uphill battle. I don't see if you can ever... Um, come to a compromise on it. it, it it's only going to be. I think it's only going to be more trouble. Oh, I, I just don't see the um, a way around it at all. Unfortunately, not everybody on the river has abandoned hope, though. A bit of good news after the break. 
So I just wanted to take a quick break to tell you a little bit about the Global Food Forum, an annual event hosted by the Australian in partnership with Vizi and supported by the Wall Street Journal. It is genuinely one of my favourite things that happens every year. I've always enjoyed my opportunities to work on it. I am not a farmer. I am not an agribusiness expert by any stretch of the imagination. But I think that the people I have met, the stories I've heard, the things I've learned about Australian farming and the future of farming, it's it's really fascinating. So if this is a sector you're interested in, I really do recommend that you check it out. It's being hosted at the Western in Sydney on the 27th of March. That is a Tuesday. Tickets are still available. Just head to globalfoodforum.com.au and secure your spot today. All right, back to the show. Australian agriculture is in a bit of a purple patch right now. University classrooms are filling up again as younger generations return to the land. Um, I have a one-year-old son, Theodore, and uh, he's basically the reason I came back to the farm. Darcy Hare is back working on his family's farm in Wakul, a 45-minute drive west of Deniliquin. Um, I decided that it was... I, I had all this positive energy coming from Melbourne about the ag industry and it's good to get into and, you know, and there's lots of jobs and it's secure. Um, getting a bit of nostalgia for what he's done, what you know, what I've been a part of. Um, and, I, you know, I wanted my son to be a part of that and, and my partner as well, so I think, yeah. Wakul really needs more young farmers like Darcy at the moment. The town is pretty close to rock bottom. The local football team shut up shop in 2016 when it was unable to find enough fit bodies to field a team. Darcy's chief concern about the river today echoes what I heard from Shelley Schooler and many other farmers along my drive. They argue that environmental concerns downriver in South Australia are overstated and hurting farmers elsewhere. We're talking about the, the Coorong in South Australia and the lower lakes um, being classified as, as fresh water. Um, and so to, for, the, um, for the living Murray and the, and the health of the Murray, there's all this fresh water coming down the river um, to keep the, mu- the mouth of the Murray open, to keep the health of the river up. Um, the mouth of the Murray is, is kept open by the tide and, and tidal movements bringing the sand out. And, and so that's, that's the problem, is the, the science that supports the basin plan um, is flawed. So just to be real here, I think from an outsider's perspective, it's easy to see this as, I don't know if it's necessarily self-interest, but like every region's going to say the basin is flawed in ways that don't relate to where they are so how can we be sure that that's not what's happening here and you're naturally going to be driven by what's most important to here and there is actually a fundamental flaw downstream yeah that's a valid point do not look at the um uh, like look at it impartially so don't don't look at one area and and what they're calling it out for don't look at another area look at the whole look at the whole plan um look at how it's impacting communities like i went to school in um 2003 first year of high school um, and I was on a, a 43-seater with about five or six kids up the aisle. Um, now, like, my sister goes to school in Barham High and um, she's got about five people on the bus. So, I mean, that's it. the water being removed from this community, it, that's the effect. And it's about, it's about a third of the water has left, has left this area. Um, and it's, it's having massive sort of social and economical impacts are there any nights where you kind of stare at the ceiling and go holy moly what have i gotten myself into or oh for sure when you're doing the numbers and um and you've got this you've got this sort of overdraft you've got this allocation you've got um, all these bills you gotta you gotta make work um yes yeah, sometimes it is a bit daunting um but then as i said you, you think about the passion of the area you think about um you know all these positive stories coming out of ag it's just there's a few things you just got to get right um, and then it's going to be really easy to sleep. And you hope that that school bus will be 
pretty chockers in, in 10 years' time once, you know, your kids are heading off to high school. That'd be perfect. Yeah. If they, if they can have 40 kids in their class like I did, and, and it's only 13 years ago. It's not, it is not a long time ago. Um, that'd be perfect. Yeah. Can't, can't, hope for anything, can't hope for anything more. Two and a half hours northwest of Darcy's property lies Robinvale. After a long, dusty drive, this verdant patch of irrigated land pops out of nowhere. It's a table grape growing powerhouse, part of the bigger region known as Sunraysia, which is responsible for more than half of the nation's total crop. And currently, business is booming thanks to a new trade deal with China. Yeah, uh, my name's Nick Maraka, table grape grower in Robinvale. Uh, been here since 1976 uh, in Robinvale, and prior to that, growing table grapes in a smaller way with my family over at Euston, which is just over the river. I went for a walk with local grape grower Nick Maraca around his property and I knew when I'd hit on an important point because he would suddenly stop, turn and finish his thought before we could resume our stroll. Uh, what's your general sense, I suppose, about the way water is being managed in this region and the expectations of farmers? Look, I, I've, <laughs> I've, I've sat on a number of committees over the years and I can see both sides of it. Unless you've actually been involved and fully understand that water is something that belongs to everybody, not just me, the farmer, and that it belongs to David, who lives in Mooney Ponds as well, and it's such a precious commodity and we all need to share it. It's difficult for growers or for farmers to have perhaps an understanding that would enable them to make comment that would achieve any reasonable or achievable outcomes because suddenly if I'm batting as a farmer and for farmers and don't take into consideration the rest of the population we're going to go nowhere. You've, you've been around this for so long presumably you've seen so many different rounds of negotiations and then this going back and forth. Do you think this is ever fixable on a grand scale? Yes I do. I think it's fixable however um for it to be fixable, I think, you know, you, and I go to into a bit into politics now, which I don't specialise in, uh, none of our governments are there for long enough to be able to have the opportunity or the time uh, to be able to fix the problem. Certainly, there needs to be a completely different approach. It needs to be longer term. And uh, at the moment, there seems to be more time spent on how can I bowl the other guy out. But look, it, it, in, in terms of does a, does a solution exist, if it doesn't, under the current situation, long term, it ain't looking good. It's not going to look good long term. So therefore, we've got to turn it around and, and, and long term make it work. Because if we don't, under the current situation, while I'm optimistic about our industry, while I'm optimistic about horticulture, you know, we've got to feed the rest of the world, or, or you know, we have an opportunity to feed the rest of the world, it could all fall apart from under us if we don't. The Murray-Darling Basin Plan seems to me like a great case study for Australia's political future. We've got a very complicated but urgent problem. Growing food in a reasonably dry part of the world where droughts are never far away. Solutions to that problem require politicians around the country to make hard calls and find a compromise that can achieve long-term security. And looking at this year's drama, I find it hard to share Nick's optimism about the prospect for significant change. Farmers clearly feel that they aren't being heard by those making the decisions. I want to finish this story with a few words from Harold Clapham, a businessman I met back in Daniloquin. He's spent his whole life on the Murray and has a wealth of experience wrangling with various layers of bureaucracy on the river. Talking to him, it honestly sounds like a bit of a nightmare.
It feels in many ways that you are not included in the process. Decisions pertaining to the regions and the outcomes for the regions are made by people that are not affected by the consequences of that decision making. And it would be nice to turn around and go to the next election on the basis that both parties agreed to adopt a, a plan and a system that they all said was untouchable and we will deal with it. But I don't see that happening, which is you know, really disappointing. And in the meantime, people like yourself, towns like Daniloquin, are just kind of caught in the middle of it. We're just a little bit like in no man's land, a little bit, <laughs> a little bit between the trenches, aren't we? As a result of the decisions and the consequences, the communities are damaged. And when you start damaging communities, you make reactive decisions as opposed to proactive decisions. And there is so much good that could come out of this at the moment that would provide so much benefit to Australia as a whole. But we now have a, a divided Australia between sort of regional urban Australia, and that's, that's the worst outcome. And that's not, our, that's not of our doing, and it's not of urban Australia's doing. It is purely and simply a part of a very divisive and disruptive political process, and it's, it's not good for anybody. Thanks to Sue Neills for her assistance in putting together this episode. Her reporting on the Murray-Darling has been extensive and outstanding, so I strongly suggest you check out her work if you want to learn more. Thanks also to all the farmers who gave up their time and humoured my dumb questions as I pulled together this podcast. You can find more stories, podcast episodes and information about farming and agribusiness on the Global Food Forum Hub at theaustralian.com.au slash gff. That's gff. Thank you very much for listening. I'm Eric George.